0: Um, we are going to continue into the attributes of God this morning. Last time we, we went over anything, it was the, the righteousness and the justice of God. And you can't hardly talk about that without talking about God's holiness, which is what I'll be dealing with this morning. Now, the problem is, I don't want you to get scared, because I know this church isn't like other churches. We're not sitting here like, hey, we've got to be at the restaurant at ten till, right? Can I get an amen on that one? I promise you, I try hard to like stay at about 45 minutes, but I'm just going to tell you this. We're talking about the holiness of God. Okay? So before I get started, I want to pray. Father, this morning I just come before you, God, very, feeling very, very inadequate, very humbled, in much need of your grace and your mercy, God. I do believe with all my heart that you gave me a gift. And I'm thankful, Lord, that every Sunday, every time I go to preach, my prayer is, God, if you don't do something in this, this is going to be a disaster. I thank you, Lord, that I have never left the fact that I need you. I need your grace to help me through these things. So, Father, this morning I pray that you would get glory for yourself that your word would be proclaimed and that Christ would be exalted. I pray for nothing more and nothing less than your perfect will. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to talk about um, just just the holiness of God. And If you want to get your Bibles ready, because my wife says I never give people time to get to somewhere when I start reading. If you want to, go ahead and turn to Isaiah chapter 6, and I will quote some things, read some passages before I get there, but you might as well just stay there. In uh to deal with the holiness of God, I often think sometimes it's just it's just one of those things we read about and it's like yeah, it's something that's important, but we you know we go on. But in in Exodus fifteen, eleven, Moses it's called the Song of Moses in this chapter, and in that song, in the eleventh verse, Moses asks the question in the song and he says this He says, Who is like you? O Lord, among the gods, who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? It's, it's a question that does not need an answer. The, the, the answer is no one. But when you turn to 1 Samuel 2, 2, Hannah gives the answer. She says, there is none holy like the Lord. For there is none besides you, there is no rock like our God. When he asks the question, who is holy like our God? Who is holy like you, Lord? Now, part of our problem at this point right now is this. We, myself included, we do not understand the depth of holiness. And in particular, when we're referring to God, when we are referring to the great I Am, Yahweh, Jehovah, Jehovah, we do not comprehend the holiness of God. And as I study this, I'm gonna, I feel like R.C. Sproul when he said this, and I quote, it's a dangerous to assume that because a man is drawn to holiness in his study that he is thereby a holy man. R.C. says, I am sure that the reason that I have a deep hunger to learn the holiness of God is precisely because I am not holy, end quote. As I was studying on the holiness of God, I found myself often drifting into ridiculous, nonsense thoughts. I found myself wanting to go turn the TV on, wanting to watch some kind of amusement, which the word amusement means no pondering deeply. The word the awe is no, and muse is to ponder deeply. Just fill my mind with Facebook. Just scroll through there with stupidity and silliness. For the most part, I'm not saying there isn't good things, but this is in the middle of studying on the holiness of God. This is what's running through my mind, which only led to, Lord, what is wrong with me? So what is the definition of holiness? Well, it comes from a Hebrew word that is pronounced, I think, kodosh, which means this. It means to cut. That doesn't help much, does it? It means to separate. To mark off, to place apart, to withdraw from common use. The idea of holiness is to cut something away from everything else and separate it. It is to be placed apart. It is other than everything else. And the, the, the next part of that is not only to be withdrawn, to be cut, to be separated from other things... In a, in a sacred way, in a sanctified way, but with a purpose given to purpose of God. Okay? Now, with regard to God's holiness, there are two meanings. And I think Jacob turned me down, didn't you? Am I just, I'm just too loud, huh? I mean, that's okay. It's, it's all for you. I just thought something sounds different here. With regard to God's holiness, there are two meanings. It really isn't good to give a guy as loud a microphone, is it? There's two meanings. The first is this: God transcends and is separate from His creation. In Psalm 89:6, He says, "For who in the skies can be compared to the to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like God? What what can we compare to God? What what can you compare? There's nothing. Okay, so." In Job 15, 15, he says, Behold, God puts no trust in His holy ones, and the heavens are not pure in His sight. Now, does that mean that the heavens are defiled, or that His holy ones, the angelic beings, are, are, are not holy? No, but what it's saying is, in comparison to God in His holiness, they're not to be compared. You just You just can't do it. And the second thing and we're dealing with God's holiness is it, it deals with God's moral perfections. And what you need to understand is this God cannot sin, he cannot take pleasure in sin, and God cannot have fellowship with sin. Job thirty four, in the second part of that verse says Far be it from God that he should do wickedness, and from the Almighty that he should do wrong. Now this is coming from Job whose complaint is I am innocent. I am undeserved of all that's happened to me. It would be better if I would have never been born than to be here. In Psalms 5 4, he says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness, and evil may not dwell with you. How many times have you had the thought? You know, you you know you're not doing good. I mean, you just, you, you see your life like nobody else does, and and, and, you know, and, and you feel like you hear them, them teaching a lot of times, like, well, if we do, if we do evil, God's going to do this. It's almost like, you know, like God has a, a little voodoo doll of you, and when you do bad, he's poking you and stuff. I mean, there's people that preach stuff like that. Well, you do something wrong, God will probably cause your arm to be broke. God does not delight. He does not delight in wickedness. He does not delight in sinful things. See, the problem is, is, is a failure to understand the God of Scripture so much of the time. The problem with so much of our, our faulty views is we have a faulty view of God. But we created God in our mind, in, our, in, our, in the image of our mind. And most of the time, this God is suited to our liking. He likes us just who we are, everything about us. And sometimes that God gets distorted and we have these false views from bad teaching about God. So now I want you to, I just want you to understand that God's holiness, let me just go over that again. God transcends. He's separate from his creation. Just simply this. God is so far removed from his creation. From men, from the stars, the planets, from angelical beings, all of that. He is so far. He is so separated that we really can't comprehend it. And God is... Perfect. he is without sin he is morally perfectly pure he is holy and so now if you if you're in isaiah 6 and we're going to read verses 1 through 8 and this is what it says it says in the year that king uzziah died i saw the lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple above him stood the seraphim each had six wings And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. I'll give you the background real quick on this. Well, while most prophets that we read about in the Old Testament, they were of humble origins. They were peasants, shepherds, and farmers. But Isaiah was a man of nobility. He came from noble lineage. And if this thing sounded a little familiar to me, I'm going, these came out of R.C. Sproul's book, The Holiness of God. He was a recognized statesman. He had access to the royal court of his day. He consorted with kings and princes. His prophetic ministry lasted from the time here in Uzziah through Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, all kings of Judah. Now, Isaiah's ministry began at the end of King Uzziah's reign. And now, now, Uzziah had been one of the better kings of Judah. Now, he, he, wasn't, he wasn't where David and, and Hezekiah and Josiah would have were, 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 were been, but he was better than, than Manasseh and people like that. So, he, he, had, a, he had a long reign, and, he, and, he, and, he, and for the most part, it was a good reign. For the most of it he ruled in godliness, doing what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to Second 2 Chronicles 26.4. It says he sought the Lord, he won battles, he built towers, he strengthened city walls, which in those days that would have been the defense of your city. He dug massive cisterns in the desert and therefore he enlarged the nation's agriculture. I mean, think about today, what do we expect out of our leaders? We want him to, to make jobs, you know, increase everything, make every. This is what, this is what Uzziah did in his day. He, he was a good king. I mean, people loved him. I mean, wh- listen, when a place prospers, when America prospers, man, we'll overlook a lot of things like, man, that guy's awesome, that guy in office. When it doesn't, we don't like him very much, right? Well, he restored the military power of Judah to a standard that almost rivaled that that had been under King David. For most of his reign, Uzziah was a beloved king. But, however, Uzziah's life, it ends on a sad note. After he had grew strong, he also grew proud. He was unfaithful to the Lord. It says that he entered the temple to burn incense to the Lord, which was unlawful for him to do. When the priest came in to try to prevent him from doing this, he was was outraged. He, you know, spoke against them, and God struck him with leprosy on his forehead. He lived in a separate house, excluded from the house of the Lord, and he was a leper till the day that he died. Uzziah's story ends on a sad note. I don't know about you, but when I go back and read about the judges and the kings and all of those, and, 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 you, and you'd already know what's going to happen, and you're like, oh, they serve the Lord, but, and you read that, and every time you're just like, why not just do it right? Just don't do that, and, but it happened. And so that's, that's kind of the background of what happened. So this brings us back to Isaiah 6, where we're going to start, and here's what we're in. We're in a time that the king has died. The country is in national mourning. And Isaiah has gone to the temple, most likely, looking for consolation. But what Isaiah is going to get is so much more. And at this point, who knows if I'll use my notes or not. I did go through the effort of writing them, but who knows. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, he says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. Isaiah goes to the temple and he's. And it's in a time. I mean, I, and some of, the, of our older people here can remember when when that day came and came across the news, the TV. JFK has been shot in our in our country. Was this in in despair and nobody knew what to do? And there was this mourning going on. This this man had reigned for 52 years. People were born and died all in the reign of Uzziah. And even though his life ends on a sad note, he had done so much good. And now the king is dead, and there is a national mourning. And Isaiah goes, and no doubt he's probably praying, Lord, what are we going to do? There's no king on the throne. And he goes and he sees a vision of the Lord in his temple, high and lifted up. What does he see? He sees God. He sees Him above everything. He sees Him in His glory. It says, the the train of his robe, it filled the temple. Kings, when they were really, really kingly, basically the longer your robe was, the longer the train of that, it was like the more authority, the more power you have. The Lord's robe, his, his train of his robe, it fills the temple. When it talks about being high and lifted up, he is exalted. He is majestic. He is infinitely above Everyone and everything. And above above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. And with two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah sees these seraphim and I don't know the number of them but they're they're around, they're flying in the in the in the throne room, they're in the temple, and, and, and he sees it and it talks about they with they have six wings. They cover their face, they cover their feet, their feet with two and two and then they fly with two wings. I don't really I've I've read commentary after commentary on this and nobody seems to agree and there's a lot of assuming and guessing. I do know this that the covering of the face was they could not even Even angelic beings closest in proximity to the throne of God cannot look upon that pure holiness, the face of God. They had to cover their face. I have a feeling that the covering of the feet was that that was lowly, that it had to be covered in the presence of God. But here's what happened. When When he's in there, they're crying out, Holy, Holy, Holy. ...is the Lord of hosts. God is holy. God is holier than all of creation. God is holiest not to be compared with. The way way it was written in those days is that when you repeated something, it was emphasis. To repeat something three times was something was being emphasized to the fullest degree... And interestingly enough, this is the only attribute listed of all the attributes of God that is repeated three times. John 4, 8 says God is love. This is in 1 John 4, 8. God is love. But it never says God is love, love, love. It could. It never says God is merciful, merciful, merciful. It could. But the scripture does say God is holy, holy, holy. Holy. If we were writing this the way we would write, we would put it in all caps with several exclamation points following it. A point of emphasis. What are we trying to say? God is holy. He says, the whole earth is full of his glory. I want you to think about something. Think about this. Everything in creation, what does it do? It shouts out glory to God. Does it not do that? I mean, you look at the mountains and you look at the oceans, you look at the seas, the stars, the sun, the moons, every bit of it glorifies its creator. The animals, the birds, the fish, everything glorifies God. Except one thing. Do you know what sin is? Sin is to miss the mark. It is a failure to glorify God. It was the pinnacle of his creation that fell in sin. And it's us, it's fallen man who fails to glorify God for who he is. But make no mistake, the earth is full. It is full of the glory of God. And it says, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Now, as I read that, I thought, is that speaking of God? I don't think so. I think it's speaking of that angel, that one crying unto the other. And then responding. And it's like, one of the places, I forget the word, but it was like there was this, when you sing songs and there's one part and there's a a response to that i can only imagine i mean and, I, and the problem is I, I don't have a great imagination but i can only imagine what it sounded like but at the voice of him who who called out it says that the foundation of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called the only thing i can picture in this is that because of the worship the praise that was being cried out, it, that praise to God, it shook the foundations. Now I know, if this is speaking of God, I know that when the voice of God speaks, it shakes things up. It's going to shake the foundations. And it says, and the house was filled with smoke. this smoke, no doubt, is, is mostly talking about the, 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 the judgment and the, and the wrath of God. I mean, Isaiah is going to deal with the sins of the people all the way through. For about 39 chapters, he's going to be dealing with their sinfulness. Folks, just stop for a second. Are you getting kind of a picture here? Isaiah has is, is got this vision of being in the temple of the Lord, and there's the Lord. Can you imagine the presence of what that felt like? I remember we was in a, we attended a church in town here. And the worship leader, this woman, she's just kind of overbearing. I mean, she—I don't know. She just had an attitude. And uh, I mean, you know, I mean, we we come from a church. We didn't raise our hands. We didn't, you know, nothing like that. We were pretty still. And but according to her, if you're not doing something, you're not worshiping the Lord. I'm getting about sick of this, you know. There's one day I I was leaning on my chair. And she was from Africa. You know, Smith, I mean, you know, a little bit of the accent thing sometimes, you know. And she said, I thought she says, no more chair leaning. And I was like, that's it, you know. I've got my hands on my chair. She actually said no more cheerleading from her. She wasn't going to try to do that no more. But what she said was this one day, she says, if the Lord was to walk in here, what would you do? Now, her idea is we'd be hopping and jumping and dancing And I thought, there is no way, there is no way we would be on our faces in reverence and in awe. We wouldn't be hopping around like a bunch of people at a party. We are going to be face down in the presence of Almighty God. Because you know why? We've never experienced holiness in this kind of magnitude. Have you ever been around somebody that's a very godly person? I talk a lot, and I talk a lot of nonsense. Sometimes I talk because I'm uncomfortable. Introverts, y'all don't say nothing. I talk. Okay? But when I get around somebody that I, I realize is a very godly person, I find myself being very quiet. It's just what I find. In verse 5, this was uh, this was Isaiah's response. And I said, woe is me. Now in the ESV it says, for I am lost. That's true. It ought to say, for I am undone. I'm just going to say, that's what it ought to say. That woe, it means like I am doomed, I am destroyed, I am... Destruction awaits me. This is, this is, I know this is where I'm at. When he speaks of being undone, he's talking about, as R.C. Sproul said, it's like, I am coming unraveled. I am falling apart. I am in the presence of Almighty the Holy God, and I'm unraveling. This is a man of nobility. This is a man who's well thought of. This is the man of man, the man of men in his day. But he is before the holy God. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Now, I want to say something. When he talks about unclean lips, Isaiah was a prophet of the Lord. He spoke the words of God. He sees God in His holiness. And you know what he says? He can't even join in with the seraphim in their praise to God saying, Holy, Holy, Holy. My lips are unclean. You know what he's saying? My heart's not right. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. I live amongst the people of unclean lips. He's throwing everybody under the bus. What's amazing to me is we see Christians today, and I'm going to show you how I know we haven't seen the holiness of God the way we should. Because we will either in our minds or more even more stupidly voice it out, how much holier I am than you. Let me remind you, no one compares to the holiness of God. Should we strive for holiness? Absolutely. It's a command of God. He says, be holy because I'm holy. He's saying, be like me. I, be, separate yourself from sin. Consecrate yourself to godliness. Be like me. But we have the audacity. We have the audacity. Understanding the standard is that to say, I think I'm holier than Dustin there guy don't even hardly tuck his shirts in i've noticed we base our holiness on long sleeves long hair the dresses we wear or not wear we base it on no offense brothers we base it on beards i've been in churches where if you didn't have a beard it's a sin i've been in church if you didn't shave smooth it was a sin all in the name of being holy i'm so holy i can't I can't drink a beer. I'm so holy, I can. How pathetic does this sound? Now we ought to be bowing in reverence to the Holy One. That's what we ought to be doing. And listen to this. He says, I, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, because why? Listen to what he says. Why is there woe as me? He says, For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Think about Moses for a second. Moses was gonna to try to deliver Egypt I mean Israel, right? He would raise up the son of Pharaoh and no doubt his mother who came in as his nursemaid, you know, and teaching him. And he knows who he is. He knows who his people are. But he's also got the privilege of being Pharaoh's son. He has everything the world can offer. But you know what? He's going to deliver his people somehow. He knew he was special and he was going to do it. I don't know. So what he do? He goes out and kills this Egyptian. He's going to do him one at a time, I guess. He gets found out. He's strong. He's a strong guy. What he do? He, he runs. He flees for 40 years. 40 years, he marries, he's over 10 in sheep, and the Lord comes to him. He sees a bush on fire, but it's not being burned up. And God speaks to him. He says, I'm going to deliver my people. I'm going to use you, Moses. He goes back, takes his family. Moses sees the miracles of the plagues that he did on Pharaoh and the Egyptians. He sees the miracle of the Red Sea parting. He sees these things where water comes forth from a rock. He saw, he has, God has directly spoken to Moses. And then, yeah, you know what Moses says? He basically says, it's not enough. He says, Lord, I ask this one thing, let me see your glory. And God says, I can't let you see my glory. You can't handle it, Moses. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to put you in a cleft in the rock and I'm going to cover you with my hand, and when I pass by, you can see my back. I can let you see that. After that, Moses goes up on the mount. He comes down with, the, with God's ten commandments. He comes down, and because he was in the presence of holy God, his face shown that the people feared him. What do you think you've attained to? You're reformed? You got, you got good doctrine? You understand what superlapsarianism is? Because if you do, you're ahead of me. You're in the best church. We have not seen the holiness of the Lord the way that we need to. How do I know that? Because I hear my own mouth too much of the time. Sad thing is I don't hear it enough how bad it is. I hear the things I talk about. I see the things I watch. I, listen, I hear the things I, I listen to. Isaiah has seen the king, the king of kings... He has seen the Lord of hosts. Interestingly enough, if you look in your Bibles, go back up, to, go back up to, uh, to verse 1, and he says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. And if you'll notice, that has a capital L and then it's lowercase letters. That word is Adonai. It means the sovereign one. But when you look down here in verse 5, he says, I've seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That is Jehovah. That is Yahweh. That is the I am that I am. Our Jehovah, our Yahweh is the sovereign one. One in the same. So here's Isaiah's condition. He says, woe is me. I'm destroyed. I'm, I'm coming unraveled. I'm coming falling apart at the seams. I've seen the king. I've seen the Lord of hosts with my eyes. <laughs> Sounds kind of like Peter, doesn't it? Coming in contact with Jesus and finally kind of realizing who this guy might be. And he says, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. But it says in verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And if you're hoping, like, man, I've always wondered what that is, and I hope he explains it. Well, I'm probably not. I don't understand all the symbolism in here, but I understand this. Isaiah saw himself in a condition where he was doomed. He was going to be destroyed. He was unraveled, undone. Cries out, woe is me. I've seen the king. I've seen the Lord of hosts. Why did a seraphim fly to Isaiah with a burning coal in his hand? That He had it in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs. Why did he fly to Isaiah with that? Because salvation is of the Lord. Isaiah was doomed. There was nothing he could do. So what happens is this. God has called him. God has chosen him for a special purpose. God takes the coal. He sends a, a seraphim there and he places it to the lips. He's saying, you are healed of your iniquities. Your sins are forgiven. This is a picture of what this is. It comes from God's altar. It's not coming from something that you do. It's not from your altar of works or your altar of good deeds or your altar of lineage. It is from the altar of the Lord where our Lord and Savior went to pay the price for us. And he has purified. He said, I am going to use that mouth that's unclean and you are going to speak my words, Isaiah. so what does this mean for us how does it how does this affect us look what we're told first Peter chapter 1 first Peter chapter 1 verse 13 I'll start there he says I'm gonna read 13 through 16 Beginning in 13, he says, therefore, preparing your minds for action. If you're reading the old King James, it says, gird up the loins of your mind. He's saying, get ready for battle. Get ready to go. And being sober-minded, he says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Where was it written at? Well, if you turn back over to Leviticus, I'll just read a couple places. Go to chapter 11. chapter 11 down in verse 44 and he says for I am the Lord your God consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy for I am holy you shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground now he's going to go on and give him all these laws of The diet, the things we're to eat and not eat. And so people... Here's the way people are. Oh, well, okay, we're just going to be holy. We just got to watch what we eat. That's what he's talking about. Well, I'll come back to that in a second. But let me take you to Leviticus 19, verse 2 first. I'll just start from verse 1. And it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy... For I, the Lord your God, am holy. And then he goes on and he says, And every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. And he's going to go on. He's going to tell them how to love God, and he's going to tell them how to love their neighbor. So it. But let me take you back. When if you want to say just about dietary laws over here in, in 1144, let me just read something. He says, when he talks about, not to defile yourselves with swarming things that crawl on the ground. 45 says, For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. This is the law about beast and bird and every living creature that moves through the waters and every creature that swarms on the ground. And he says, And to make a distinction between unclean and clean, between the living creature that may be eaten and the living creature that may not be eaten. All through the Old Testament, what God was really telling him was this. It didn't matter if it was dietary or anything else. He said, I want you to do what's right. I want you to do what's clean. I want you to not do what's wrong. I don't want you to do what is unclean. That is the idea of what you need to get out of this when it talks about being holy. So so where does this come to us when when, he's, when he, we're dealing over here in Peter, when he says, be holy, for the Lord, for the Lord your God is holy. Be holy because I'm holy. Where does that start? What, I, what what bothers me so much of the time is it seems like in all of our learning, instead of it, instead of it, leading us into holiness, where our mind is more about I want to be pleasing to God. I don't want to be displeasing. It seems to drive us to where, hey, I can do this and I can do this and this and this and let me tell you something. You better bring your thoughts under the obedience of Christ. What have you what do you think about? Here's a crazy question. I would love to be able oh, to no, maybe not. I'll just put it to you like this. How would you like for your thoughts during this message to be put up here where everybody can read? Like a quote. Sean, this is what he said a while ago. This is what he thought. I'm like, what? What is he thinking? What have you been thinking about right here? Where you're going to eat lunch? How long is this guy going to go? What's he talking about? Are you not seeing what Isaiah saw? Are you not picturing it? He wants us to be pure in our thoughts. I've already confessed, even while I'm studying this, I wasn't pure in my thoughts. Our thoughts are going to lead to what we speak. Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Do we really try to guard what we say? Guys like me and Kenny, we need extra prayer. We're those guys that don't have a muffler or a filter. My wife tells me a lot, she says, you just don't have a filter. You just think it and you say it. It's the truth. Sometimes things may be the truth doesn't necessarily mean we have to speak them in a certain situation let me put it to you this way the way that you live your life it correlates to how you see god a w tozer said this and this is kind of a paraphrase may not be an exact quote but he says when you hear About God, when you think of God, what comes to your mind tells you what person you are. It kind of defines who you are. When you think about God, what comes to your mind? Because what comes to your mind is how you're going to live your life. If you picture God as some mean God, that I can't approach, you're going to try to stay away from him. You're going to stay away from the Bible because God is just going to beat you up. You're going to stay away from church because he's just going to judge you. Those people are just going to look down on you. If you see God is like the little g, I'm going to say it like that, the little g God of the shack, why you and that Jesus are just chuckling away. Y'all are just having a good old time. You're going to live your life in this little flippant, weird way. What if you saw what Isaiah saw? What if you saw that? Would that change you? On the way over here, I was praying... I was praying, and and my prayer was this. I said, Lord, just like Moses prayed, Lord, I just want a glimpse. I I want to see your glory. And I was just thinking about to really be able to see this. And all of a sudden, I just said, I said, God, forgive me. And I broke. I just broke. I broke like I haven't broke down in a long, long, long time. And I didn't even see that. But for a brief moment, driving down the highway, God just opens my heart just a little bit. Then I got more of a glimpse than I had. And then I said, Lord, I don't want to leave this moment I've had these moments where I get a glimpse, and you—it just—it's—it's—it's it's, it's mind blowing. And then I find myself here again, groveling in slop, just complaining and woe is me. And when it isn't woe is me, and I'm like, Lord, I don't want to go away from this place. Now you get back to Isaiah. I want you to think about that. What, what would you do if you saw this? What, how would you respond? Let me get back over there real quick. Listen to this. In verse 8. This is, this is incredible. It's amazing how we read over it. And we just we, we don't even see how awesome. The next verse says this. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying... Until this point, he hasn't heard the voice of God. He's seen the King. He's seen the Lord of hosts. He saw Him in that temple, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe fills the temple. He's majestic. I mean, I'm going to say something like awesome, but we throw words out so much today that they lose their meaning. To be honest, you should never say something's awesome unless you're talking about God. And I know if you've ever got any text from me and when you tell me some good news, I'll go, awesome, with an explanation point. It probably is really good news. But when compared to God, it probably doesn't qualify. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, now I'm going to tell you, if you got your ESV, you need to just... Put a line through the next three words. Or no, you don't got to do that. You can just write it above or below it. Here it says, here I am, send me. But that's not what it should say. He's not asking, where are you at? He's saying, who will go for us? And Isaiah responds, here am I. He's saying, I'm reporting for duty. When Tyler and Kaylee went to the perspectives class, they came in really excited one night. I say class, it's like a, I don't know, several month deal every week. He came in one night, I don't remember who the speaker was, it might have been Doug Scheibel, but whoever it was, talking about missions like what Justin was talking about. The question was put to everybody, how, how worthy is the Lord of our going? I mean, if you're going to say, like, what's it, what's it worth? I mean, how far would you go for Jesus? Just picture you going, and I would go to Mexico, or I'd, I'd go to Canada, or i, I might I'd go to Kansas, you know. I'd go that far for the Lord. But when did, when is it that you say, I would go this far for you, Lord, but not this far? Immediately, you know what pops in my mind? The Middle East, crazy terrorist. I'm like, I know I'd get off the plane, and if some dude would walk up and shoot me, it'd be over. I'd think, gosh, I should have picked somewhere else. But they came back and they said this. They said, "The question was put to him: If God says go, is your yes already on the table? Is your yes already there? Are you willing to go if God so says go?" Man, if I saw that vision of Isaiah saw, I might do it. I might do it. Well, if you would, would you turn your Bibles over to the book of Matthew? If you will, turn like to the 27th chapter. I want you to picture this scene the best you can. It's very fitting today. We're going to be rolling right into communion. I want you to try to picture this scene. Jesus is in the garden and he's praying with his disciples and they keep falling asleep on him. Judas leads a band of Roman soldiers and some of the Sanhedrin and they arrest him. And this is right after Peter has boldly declared, I'll never leave you. I'll fight for you. I'll die for you. I'm ready. And everybody's agreeing. Now, Peter's a spokesman. Everybody, you know, is on board. We always, Peter always gets pinned as the worst, but he's like Kenny and me. He speaks before he thinks. They come and arrest him, and what happens? All of his disciples fled from him. Peter loves Jesus. He gets close enough. He's warming himself by the fire while it's cold, watching a mockery of a trial. You know, you know kind of not the trial yet, but... People hitting him and such, and he's warm enough, you know, he's, he's comfortable, but a girl sees him and says, you, you're one of his disciples. He says, I'm not. And Jesus told him, you're going to deny me three times. He says, not me, Lord. She asks, says, accuses a second time and a third time, I'm not. He begins to curse and swear. I mean, he's a, with an oath. I'm, I don't know him. And you read in the book of Luke, it says Jesus turned and looked at him. I can't even imagine what that felt like. It says he went out and wept bitter tears. They take him. <clears throat> they send him to Herod. Roman soldiers, they beat him with rods. They put a crown of thorns on his head. Pilate asked him, Who shall I, who shall I set free? Who, who shall I give you? I mean, who, who do you want? This is, this is an easy question. Here's Barabbas. He is a murderer, a thief. I mean, he caused riots, and this guy needs to die. He's one of those reputable criminals. And they said, release Barabbas. What shall I do with Jesus and crucify him? So they had him scourged. The cat of nine tails, a handle with several leather straps on it, mingled with bone and metal and glass, and they whip him. If Adrian Rogers is correct, they would tie your hands together, strap you up over a beam like this, all tight. One would be on the front and one would be on the back. I don't know exactly how it went. It really doesn't matter. It was horrible. And then they put him on a cross. We don't get to see the vision that Isaiah saw. But the best that you can, I want you to picture our king, that king, that Lord that was high and lifted up that Isaiah saw. And now he is on a, on a cross extended between earth and heaven. And why is he there? Because of you and me. Because God loves his people but because God's just. He's there because He loves you, and He's there because there's no way that you can stand before this holy God. You were just like Isaiah. Woe is me, I am undone. It's incredible. We go out and we preach. We go out and street preach. We'll tell people, well, you know you're a sinner, right? I know, y'all are really going to get me for this one using a phone, right? I want you to listen to this quote, okay? This is Paris Reedhead, preacher from back in the 60s. He says, if I had my way, I would declare a moratorium on public preaching of the plan of salvation in America for one to two years. He's not talking about 2017. He's talking about in the 60s and 70s. Then I would call on everyone who has use of the airways and the pulpits to preach the holiness of God the righteousness of God, and the law of God, until sinners would cry out, What must we do to be saved? Then I would take them off in a corner, and I would whisper the gospel to them. Such drastic action is needed because we have a gospel-hardened generation of sinners by telling them how to be saved before they have any understanding why they need to be saved. If you don't get anything else out of this message today, I want you to understand this. Your God is so most holy that you can't even begin to comprehend it, and neither can I. And we are so sinful. We are so dreadfully, wickedly sinful that we have no idea how far God should remove us from Him. And yet Jesus hangs on a cross Because God has poured His love out on you through the death of His Son. And through His resurrection, He has justified all of those who believe and place their faith in Christ. When I heard that quote, when I read that quote, I thought, I'm going to next time I go open air and preach, I'm just going to talk about how majestic and how lofty and how awesome and infinite God is until God's spirit breaks through and somebody realizes, I am not that. We go preach the gospel, we make a trivial thing, even though we think we're not of sin because we, do. we fail to understand it because we fail to understand the holiness of God. Jesus says this. Listen to this. He says, Jesus he comes down to this place and he says he cried out again with a loud voice and he yielded up his spirit. In, in John, he says, it is finished. In, in, in Luke, I believe it says, Father, into your hands I commend, my, I commend my spirit. Commend my spirit. I think when he cried out, he said what Luke said first. And then I think he quiet, I think he says, it is finished. The work that you sent me to do, the price has been paid. It has all been done right here. Can you imagine that first sermon that Peter preached? And those people, when when Peter gets to this point and he says, this Jesus, the one of Nazareth, the one that you crucified with wicked hands, the predetermined plan of God, yeah, he predetermined it, but you wickedly and sinfully did it. Oh yeah, this same Jesus God raised up. They knew there's was an empty tomb. Even when we do the gospel, we forget the biggest part. If this man raised from the dead, he really was who he said he was. And the question came out, what must we do now? What can we... What, we have crucified. We have killed our king. We have put to death... The Lord Jesus. We have no hope. Basically, they could have said, Woe is me, I am undone. And he goes on. And it says, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook... And the rocks were split. The curtain was torn from the top to the bottom. God is the one who removed the veil that we, we are a priesthood of believers. There's not a a certain high priest now that enters in for us on our behalf, Jesus Christ. But in that, we are able to enter into the holy of holies by the blood of Jesus Christ. I hope I hope today that this my prayer was God help me in all my ability and above that pour into the hearts of our people pour into the ears of that we're sitting here how holy you are that it drives us it makes us yearn and thirst and hunger to be like Christ to not want to be like this world To not want to dress like this world. Let me ask you a question. Does your speech, is it something that you would speak in front of God? Let's just bring it down a little bit lower than that. If John MacArthur was in our church today, how would we act after church? I'm sorry, I just have a big feeling that a bunch of the foolishness would probably leave. John might leave going, man, that's a really stiff group of people there how do how we do this you see, because here's the thing in, in chapter 28 of, <clears throat> of Matthew Jesus says verse 18 all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Here he is again. Here he is again. Who shall I send? Who will go for us? Now, when Isaiah saw the temple, you know, we always say, when Isaiah stepped up, Isaiah was the only guy there. It was pretty obvious who the Lord was speaking to. Understand, we'll never be like God. That's okay. Okay, we're going to spend an eternity of eternities growing and knowing God. I don't even know how to comprehend that. I see people just reject the Bible because they can't get an understanding how to handle this God, how to put him in a box that I've got him figured out. I've systemized God. You will never, ever Forget time. In all of eternity, you never do that. But I think we need to seek our hearts. We need to search our hearts. And just start looking, God, I want to be like Jesus. I'm not talking about showing back up here, everybody wearing black and looking like we're about to die. No, we're just who we are. But everything that we do, we need to do it to God's glory. We need to do it because He is holy. One thing about His holiness is I think it is the preeminent attribute in the sense that His holiness describes every other attribute. I mean, I know the attributes just continue to define and describe each one, but His holiness seems to have the preeminence in all of that. And I I may be wrong, and God forgive me if I am. With that being said, I'm going to go ahead and do communion, too. What timing for that?